Okay, welcome to the Realizing Romans class. We haven't been meeting for the last uh, a week or so because uh, school was closed, and whenever school's closed, Harvest House is closed. So we've kind of missed a week, but we are going to wrap up today Romans chapter 3. So we have verses 21 through 31 left, and Lord willing, we'll be able to uh, cover that. Now, most of you were pretty surprised when I came in here because I trimmed my beard, so I figured I'd just give an explanation. Um, I know my beard was pretty long, and I was pretty proud of it, and I think that was the problem. It's kind of your guys' fault, because all the guys were saying, man, that's such a cool beard. beard man. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, you know, seriously, I was, I, the last couple days, I felt like the Lord was convicting me, you know, because it, it's not that I stand in front of the mirror and primp for hours with it or anything like that, but I kind of felt like Absalom's hair like it was a source of pride, you know? I mean, Absalom cut his hair once a year and weighed it. Who weighs their hair? I mean, it's just like, oh, look at my hair. And, you know, I kind of felt, like it was almost as the Lord saying, you know, this isn't for religious reasons necessarily. Do you love me or do you love your beard? And I said, Lord, I will, I will sacrifice my beard for you. And I knew it was hard because I had that reluctance to do it. And that's how I knew. And then, to top it all off, I'm flipping through the Bible, you know, and the, and the Lord led me to Romans 18, verses 8 and 9. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your beard offends you, cut it off. I'm like, yeah, my beard's offending me. It's causing me to sin. It's, it's leading me to, to pride. So I said, all right, Lord. So Pam was happy. Ariana was happy. So <laughs> anyway, so that, that's kind of the explanation. <laughs> So I, I uh, you still got hair. yeah, I mean, I still got my beard and everything, but, uh, you know, and, and I, I kind of grew it because it was kind of, uh, almost, I didn't really take a Nazarite vow cause you really can't do that today cause there's no temple, but I was kind of growing it for the Lord and kind of getting back to my Hebraic roots more deeply. But then it kind of turned into a thing of pride because beards can be a source of pride in Judaism. It just like shofars. I have a little shofar, and I love it because it's portable. But people come out, look at my triple twist shofar. It's like shofar envy, and it's like, dude, I don't care how big your shofar is. Like, you know, I like the, I like the, uh, I like the small one. Anyway, it's portable. Yeah, I love, oh, I want to get another one. Okay, so that, uh, that, that, that's out of the way. So let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer and jump right in and hopefully finish off Romans chapter 3 this afternoon. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the preservation of your word and all the people throughout history who copied it and meticulously letter for letter to make sure that nothing was missing or, or nothing was was changed and and Lord how you preserve your word and that wasn't even done with the ancient Roman writings of like Homer and and you know whoever else uh, um, you know the philosophers Socrates and Plato but it was meticulous in your word, and it was also preserved in Aramaic and sometimes Hebrew. And Lord, we just thank you and praise you for that. It's something that we can depend on from the Old Testament, from the Tanakh, all the way to the New Testament, the Brit Chadashah. So Lord, we ask that you would just open up our hearts and minds and make us receptive to your word. And we love to look at your word and interpret your word through our Western sensibilities and through our cultural lenses. But if we don't understand it from a Hebraic context, it's easy to take out of context and read things into it that's not really there. So, Lord, help us to understand it the way Paul meant it 
And uh, even though it was applicable and was written for a specific date and time, doesn't mean that it's obsolete for us. It is relevant and pertinent and is very applicable to the Western 21st century uh, days. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so last time we dealt with a little phrase, works of the law, and that's going to show up again towards the end. So I'll kind of cover it again to kind of reiterate because that's often a phrase that is grossly misunderstood and taken out of context. So let's go ahead and uh, start by reading Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now God's righteousness, apart from the Torah, apart from the law, has been revealed to which to which the Torah and the prophets bear witness. Okay, so here it's saying that God's righteousness doesn't need special revelation to reveal itself. That God's righteousness, even though we have it recorded in his word, has also been recorded in the very creation of things. Because if you remember, there's uh, natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation is the created order, how God can be revealed within the created order, and how his righteousness even is revealed in the created order. But then the special revelation tells us how we can know that God who created things. See, with just natural revelation alone, we're clueless. We don't know how to, to, to talk to God, to commune with God, to fellowship with him, to worship him. We need special revelation for that. That's God's word. That's the Bible. But natural revelation, and it's interesting, too, that even though I'm saying this, at the same time, God's special revelation has been written all over nature. Because whatever is in heaven is mirrored on earth. And whatever is mirrored in the sea is mirrored on earth. You know, and uh, kind of like an earthly example, uh, I remember watching a documentary and a guy was in the Amazon and the natives there were eating tarantulas. And he tried it. And you know what it tasted like? Chicken. Nope, a crab. <laughs> because, you know, it is, it, is a, it is a kind of a crustacean. It is an arachnid, but it, it mirrors the crab. And so it makes sense it would taste the same. But, you know, you have, you know, as in, as in heaven, so on earth... Um, you kind of have that principle too. So in Psalm 19, David reveals that God's message, God's word, is actually written in the stars. There's been books, Gospel in the Stars uh, by uh, a guy named Seiss. There's been like three or four books written about how the constellations had a biblical story to tell and a biblical meaning before it got hijacked by the Greeks and the Romans. And that's what we know of the constellations today. So just really quickly, I want to kind of read Psalm 19 because I think it's very uh, uh, appropriate here. So Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky shows his handiwork. Day to day they speak. Well, how do they speak? They speak through the constellations. Day to day they speak. Night to night they reveal knowledge. So God has set you know, the seasons, we can tell the seasons by the stars, we can navigate by the stars, so there's knowledge within the stars. But there's also a gospel story to be told in the stars as well. There is no speech, no words, where their voice goes unheard. So you can see creation all over the world, you can see the night sky all over the world. And, you, and actually, missionaries have used in the past the constellations that everybody's aware of, even the most remote tribal, they have their own stories for it, but they can start 
you know, that as a springboard by using the constellations as a, as a gospel springboard. There is no speech, no words where their voice goes unheard. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and the words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he pitches his tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of the bridal chamber. So because of the sun and moon also kind of reveals and plays into God's special revelation because Leviticus 23 is all of God's holidays, all of God's special feasts, which is regulated by the activity of the sun and the moon. Uh, it is like a strong man rejoicing to run the course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And then he makes this link between natural revelation and special revelation because in verse 8 starts special revelation. His Torah, his law, the law of Adonai is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Adonai is trustworthy, making simple the wise. The precepts of Adonai are right giving joy to the heart. The mitzvot, or the commandments of Adonai, are pure, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord, or the fear of Adonai, is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Adonai are true and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, more than, much more than pure gold. They are sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And keeping them, there is great reward. That plays into Deuteronomy 28. Blessing if you keep God's word, curse if you don't. Verse 13, who can discern his errors? Cleanse me of my hidden faults. Also keep your servant from willful sins. May, may they not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and free from great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. And see, this verse right here is how most Jews end their liturgical prayers. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable before you, Adonai, my rock and my redeemer. So back to Romans 3.21. But now God's righteousness, apart from the law, apart from Torah, has been revealed to which the Torah, the law, and the prophets bear witness. So the scripture tells us that by two or three witnesses, let everything be established. You have the created order, which is a witness in and of itself. Then you have the written word which is the special revelation, which is witness in and of itself. And that's split up into three parts. You, well, actually four parts. But you've got the Torah and the prophets, because that's kind of specifically mentioned here. So we would say that that is the Tanakh. Christians would call it the Old Testament. Then you have the Brit Chadesha, the Renewed Covenant, the New Testament, which was written by the apostles. That also backs up what was said in the Old and, what is backed, and, and backs up what is said through creation itself. All of God's revel, uh, all revelations of God's righteousness uh, foretells of Yeshua, and He is the righteousness that is manifest in the flesh. Uh, God would be righteous even without special revelation, and God's righteousness is even revealed in creation itself. He didn't have to reveal to us His special revelation, but because of His love and His mercy, He has. So that's what gives natural revelation even much more pertinence and meaning now that we have special revelation, God's word. All right, so moving on to verse 22. Namely, the righteousness of God through putting trust or faith or belief, it's been translated all three different ways, in Messiah Yeshua. To all who keep on trusting or keep having faith or keep believing, for there is no distinction. So Yeshua backs up and confirms and validates the three witnesses of Torah, prophets, and the Brit Kadesha, the New Testament. Um, 
So let's see. All right, Yeshua keeps the Torah perfectly and is proof of who he is, what he is able to do for the soul and for mankind. And then, see, that's one thing that Yeshua not only validates special, a natural and special revelation, God's word, he validates it and backs it up because he's the only one who is able to live it perfectly. And because he lived it perfectly, it testifies to the word that he's coming and that he came and that he's the one that, that, that was spoken about in the scripture by Moses, by all the other prophets, etc. So we're going to read verses 22 and 23 together. Namely, the righteousness of God through putting trust in Messiah Yeshua to all who keep on trusting, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is the famous verse that we have for the Romans road. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the Torah, God's law, tells us how to be righteous, whereas Yeshua shows us how to be righteous, how to live it out. It's one thing to read about how to do something. I have a problem with that. Not that I'm a dumb guy. I actually overanalyze things. So if I get something from Ikea and it's telling me how to put something together, I overanalyze and I end up confusing myself and I can't really put it together. But if there was like a little website that says, here's a video on how to put this together, I can watch the video and say, oh, okay, yeah, that, that's what it means. That's what I thought it meant, but I wasn't sure because it could have meant this, it could have meant that. So when something's shown how to do it, you learn to apply it into, uh, um, pra yeah, it's practical. You, you learn to do it a whole lot better. So it's one thing to read it, and it's another thing to see it lived out. Uh, and I think it's more effective if you see it lived out. So we can witness to people and tell people what God's word says, what God's expectations are all day and night, but people don't care unless they see you live it out themselves. Because if they do, they say, oh, okay, well, this person lives it out. And even if you fail to live it out, if you fess up and say, you know what, this is what I should have done, but I didn't, I screwed up, I was wrong, that goes a long way. Because a lot of times people think that Christians are holier than thou and that we think that we're perfect and we're just nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. But when we screw up and admit it and say, look, I, you know, this is my fallen nature and this is sometimes what I do even though I don't want to do it. That really changes how people view us and how people see things. So I'm going to look to my notes here. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, they got to see our fruit. So, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, the word for sin is kind of borrowed from an archery term, and it means to miss the mark, to miss the bullseye, to miss the target. That's what sin is. So it's as if that righteousness is a goal, and if we shoot for that goal and we miss it, we've sinned, we've missed the mark, we've, we've not hit the bullseye. It's kind of the same in basketball with an air ball, right? You've seen people do air balls, right? They think that they're going to put it right through the net, swoosh, nothing but net, and it falls short, and everybody's like, air ball. That is a definition of sin. It's falling short. It's, uh, so that's why Paul words it this way. For all have sinned. All have missed the mark. And they've fallen short of that goal, which is the glory of God. And what's the glory of God? His righteousness. Because that's what it was talking about in verses 21. Uh, and 22. Uh, okay, so now this kind of brings to mind for me uh, 1 John 3, 4, which is actually the definition of what sin is. So a lot of times people say, well, what's sin? How do you know what a sin is? Well, sin is breaking of God's law. It's breaking of the Torah. That's exactly what, uh, what it says in uh, 1 John 3, 4. Uh, okay, 
The written and living word reveals we are not and cannot be righteous in and of ourselves. So because of our fallen nature and because of our sin, that fallen nature gives us the inability to be able to live out the Torah perfectly. Does that mean that it's obsolete for us and we don't have to obey God's word because simply we can't do it, so why try? No, we should still strive for that. But God's grace comes in, whereas He and His Holy Spirit comes in, in order to help us, equip us, and enable us to keep His word. So we can't keep His word on our own or by ourselves, but with the Lord's help, His grace, and the Holy Spirit guiding us, we can do it. And uh, so that's what we should strive to do. All right. We need God's help to do that, the empowerment of grace and the Holy Spirit. All right, so let's move on to verses 24 through 26. They are set right as a gift of his grace through the redemption that is in Messiah Yeshua. God set forth Yeshua as an atonement through faith in his blood to show his righteousness is passing over sins already committed. Wow, I love that verse. Amen to that. Through God's forbearance, he demonstrates his righteousness at the present time, that he himself is just and also the justifier of the one who puts their trust in Yeshua. So we become righteous when we, number one, believe in Messiah's finished work on the cross and dying in our place. So when we acknowledge that Yeshua took our place on the cross, we're acknowledging that we deserve to die the horrific death he did because of our sin. And not only that, but even for the sin of Adam and Eve that kick-started it all off. We deserve, we deserve nothing but that. And God would have been totally just and totally righteous if when Adam and Eve sinned, he says, that's it, I'm done. You know, I gave you one shot, one chance, and you screwed it up. You just couldn't even keep one simple rule, and he could have just done away with it all. But he says, no, 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 I love my creation, and I want to redeem my creation. I've got my justice that needs satisfied, so how do I satisfy that? And that shows up in Genesis 3.15, where he prophesies of this Redeemer to come that will crush the head of the serpent, while at the same time the serpent will crush his heel. So I always like to think of the spike that went into Yeshua's heel as one of the fangs of the serpent, in a sense. So he says, you know, basically Yeshua, knowing that he's God's son, he's God manifest in the flesh, therefore he can live out the Torah perfectly. He can keep all the demands of God's law perfectly and not sin once. And a lot of times people mistake his bucking the Pharisaical system as breaking the law, but that's not one and the same. Because the Pharisees made up extra laws to put on top of God's laws. And basically, the way the rabbis explain it is that, um, you know, it, it's like a fence to help keep you out. So you have a rule. Let's say, let's, let's go back to our childhood. Your mom says, don't touch the stove. You're going to get burned. Right? That should be enough. But yet, a lot of times, children will burn themselves because they, they're curious. They can't I help. That yeah. But let's say that mama puts a baby gate up at the kitchen door to where you can't even get close to the stove. Mm. So, you know, the commandment was by your mother, don't touch the stove or you get burnt. Well, mom's helping you to keep away from the stove by putting up a fence. And that's what the Pharisees say about the extra laws that they that they made up. 
Now, there's really nothing wrong with those as long as you realize that they are not God's laws in and of themselves. Because these extra laws can backfire on somebody very quickly, and it backfired on Eve. Because the commandment was, don't eat the fruit. But yet Eve told the serpent, we're not even allowed to touch it. Who said that? God didn't say that. Did Adam make that up? Did Adam set a fence around the rule to help keep Eve away? Because, you know, once she touched it, the serpent says, see, look here. You're not going to die. So it can backfire. And then Yeshua also brought out other ways that these extra laws backfire in that, you know, he says, look, you nullify the commandments thinking that you're being so righteous. You nullify the very commandments of God by these extra laws. You, you, you know, you're, the, the law is to honor your father and mother, to, to uh, um, you know, provide for them in their old age. But if you say, mom, dad, I'm sorry, I can't use my funds to help you because my funds are already dedicated to the temple. I'm going to give it to God. He says, you just nullified the law by these extra, extra laws that you've you know, put in place. So you've got to learn when these extra laws are healthy and when these extra laws are unhealthy, but always realize that these extra laws are not God's Torah. They should be able to assist us in keeping God's commandments. But when they don't, we need to get rid of them. So, you know, like, it, it, like for an alcoholic, you know, a lot of times an alcoholic will make rules for themselves. I mean, the Bible clearly says it's, it's, it's not a sin to drink, but it's a sin to get drunk. And so alcoholics have a problem with getting drunk. So they make up these fences around that law of not getting drunk because they need to stay far away because the closer they get, it, it, the, the, the easier the temptation is to fall into. So they'll say, you know what? You know, I won't even go to anybody's house if they have liquor in their, in their cabinets because that's just too much for me. Yeah, so you can understand how on the one hand these extra laws can be a good thing and on the other hand how they can be a very bad thing. We just need the wisdom to understand and to know the difference. So that's kind of a little bunny trail, but I think it was, uh, think it was prudent. So as I said, we become righteous when we believe in Messiah's finished work on the cross and dying in our place. Like us getting a speeding ticket, not being able to pay it. Somebody steps up and says, I'll pay it for him. Judge don't care who pays it as long as it's paid. God doesn't care, you know, uh, you know, that you die necessarily to, to, you know, atone for your sins. That would be an eternal death in hell. All he cares is that, that that offense is paid for, and Yeshua paid for it in our place. All we have to do is let him. Number two, he's the only one that could, exactly. Number two, when we apply Messiah's righteousness to ourselves, making it our own, that is called faith righteousness. All right, so this kind of reminds me of those little uh, dress-up dolls, those paper dolls. And you cut out their outfits and you just press the tabs on them to put the clothes on them. So you're superimposing these clothes on the paper doll. And that's the way God's righteousness works. We're naked before God. We're, we're sinful before God because that's just our fallen human nature we're born into. But it's almost as if... Christ's righteousness is like that little paper dress-up doll where it's put over top of us so God no longer sees our sin. All he sees is God's righteousness. And we, we, we claim that for ourselves, and we take that unto ourselves, kind of the same principle here. So that is faith righteousness, when we believe in Messiah and accept Messiah's finished work for us. Now, faith righteousness, that's all well and good, but you have to have works righteousness to back up faith righteousness. Because works righteousness should be a result of faith righteousness. 
If you believe God, you're going to want to serve him. If you believe God and love him, you're going to want to keep his commandments. So the works righteousness is born out of faith. You can't put the cart before the horse and have works righteousness end up in faith righteousness. It doesn't work that way. You've got to have faith righteousness before works righteousness. So moving on to verse um, moving on to verse 27. 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what principle? Of works? No. And I like how he says that because works are important. It's not the end all to end all, but the works kind of back up your faith. So where is the boasting? Is it, is, um, it is excluded. By what principle of works? No, but by the principle of faith. All right, so in connection with that, I want to read something else. Sorry, what was it? Uh, uh, Romans 3.27. Yep. So I want to, in connection with that verse that we just read, I want to read another uh, thing that the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That grace, we don't deserve it. It's, it's, you know, unmerited favor of God. We don't deserve it. For by grace, it's because of just his grace, his favor, his want to, you have been saved, rescued through what? Through faith, through your belief, through your trusting in the finished work of Christ. And this is not from yourself. In other words, we can't even have faith in and of ourselves. Now, Calvin's, Calvinists are a real stickler for that point. But Arminianists are too. We can't have faith in and of ourselves. The scripture says that no man comes to God unless he is drawn by the Spirit, unless the Father calls him. So somebody just can't wake up one day and say, oh, well, I think I'm going to decide to be a Christian. Lord, come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. It doesn't work that way. You're just saying a bunch of words that don't mean anything. The Holy Spirit has to prompt you, convict you, woo you, draw you, and that's what it's saying here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. So faith is even a gift of God. Just like our salvation is a gift from God. It is not based on deeds. You can't work yourself to salvation. And I ran into a guy just last week. And uh, I didn't really engage him because he was, uh, was kind of lit. And you can't really reason with a lit person. So he's like, he knew I was a minister. And he says, well, I'm a good guy. You treat me well, I'll treat you well. You know, and he just kind of kind of just kept, you know, focusing in on that point. And I'm thinking to myself, you're missing the whole point. It's not about the good works you do. That's not the point at all because, you know. So he's into this work salvation kind of thing. It is not based on deeds so that you may, so that no one may boast. So, yeah, if, if I did something to earn my salvation, I can kind of puff out my chest and say, hey, look what I can do. Look, 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 look at what I did. Are you able to do that? But that's not, you know, God doesn't want any of that. I mean, when it comes to salvation, it doesn't matter if we're rich or poor, strong or weak, fat or skinny, tall or short. We're all on the same level playing field. There, you know, salvation, our fallen nature is the equalizer. It's the ultimate equalizer. It makes us all the same in God's eyes on the same level. And none of us can work our way to, to salvation. And that's what people mistake Torah observance for. They think, well, if you're keeping the Torah, you're trying to earn your salvation. No, I'm just keeping the Torah because that's what God wants me to do. Because that's his law. That's his will. That's, you know, that pleases him. It's not that I, I think that if I do that, that I'm going to get brownie points with God. That's not the point of it at all. Because my works prove and back up my faith, just like James says over and over and over in his book. 
So we've got to get this notion out of our head that Jews believe that you can work yourself to salvation, especially Messianic Judaism. That's not the case at all. So hopefully I can bust that myth for you. Um, all right. Now, so let's go back to verse 27 of Romans chapter 3. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what principle of works? No, but by the principle of faith. By the principle of faith. So um, the emphasis is on faith righteousness. All right, verse 28. For we considered a person to be set right, or to be set right apart from. Now, this is a bad translation. I'll just say it out right here. The Tree of Life version and the Complete Jewish Bible love those translations, but I think they got it wrong here. So it says, for we consider a person to be set right apart from Torah observance. That's, that's not what it is. That's not what the word is, Torah observance. The word is works of the law. And I guess the translators of the Complete Jewish Bible and the Tree of Life version were not privy to this. They did, I know, I get what they were doing. They didn't want to repeat what has already been written, and they were translating it as they thought was proper. But actually, works of the, works of the law is actually an old phrase that was used by the Essenes, the Qumran community, the community of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It wasn't a Pharisaical phrase. It wasn't a Sadduceical phrase. You won't find it in any of their literature. But I think a lot of the believers, the Torah-obedient believers of, of Paul's time, was kind of drawn more towards a practice of faith in regards to... Um, NIV version. Yeah. That's exactly what you just said. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think that they were more drawn to an um, Essene expression of their faith, that they thought that the Essene traditions were more true to God's word than the Pharisees' traditions or the Sadducees' traditions, which may be true because John the Baptist, I believe, was an Essene because he was living in that part of the desert. He was a Levitical priest, but he wasn't working in the temple because he's like, you guys are crooks. You guys are crooked. You've perverted everything. So he went out into the wilderness to become this, you know. Was he an evangelist? Yeah, he was an evangelist. He was this. He was wearing. He was. He was, It was thought to believe that he was actually wearing Elijah's mantle oh, that had been passed down. The camel hair. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. So. I think that's why Paul is bringing this out by saying works of the law because he's probably realizing that they're staying away from Phariseeism because um, you know that it, 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 it's not the truest expression of carrying out God, living out God's word. And of course the Sadducees, they didn't believe in angels or in the resurrection. Uh, but interestingly enough, Paul never renounced his Phariseeism. He says, I am a Pharisee, not I was. And it's interesting that even though that Jesus never proclaimed that I'm this or I'm that, he kept the Pharisaical traditions except for when it bucked up against the word of God itself because he lived in a Pharisaical, a Pharisaical world, a Pharisaical community. So back to this word, works of the law. And let's, let's see where this comes from. So works of the law doesn't mean working for your salvation, keeping the commandments in order to be right with God. That is not what works of the law means. There's other translations. I think the Aramaic says deeds of the law. So basically, works of the law was a false Essene doctrine which talked about obtaining salvation through ritual purity based on a misinterpretation of Habakkuk 2.4. What's some example of that? Which, uh, well, the Habakkuk 2.4 is the just shall live by faith. But 
where they, they had more stringent and stricter purity laws than the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees ran the, um, the uh, synagogues. So they believed in washing your hands before meals, not oh, because sure. God... Well, no, no, no. The koshers, that's a legitimate God thing. You know, that still stands. But like washing your hands. It, was, uh, it wasn't for health reasons. It was for a ritualistic purpose. Why did the Pharisees wash their hands? Because the priests washed their hands in the laver before they performed any ritual in the temple. And so they saw their synagogue and their homes as a kind of like a baby version of the temple. And so they wanted to live their life as priests as close to the priesthood as possible. So they come up with all these laws of rituals of purity. So a pharisaical washing of hands would be an example. Now, the Sadducees ran the temple, so they had all these rituals of themselves. Whereas the Essenes looked at them both and said, you guys are both not strict enough. It's almost like, it's almost like the Amish that broke away from the Mennonites and said, you guys aren't strict enough for us. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to be even stricter than you. And so that's kind of what the Essenes did. So the works of the law are these uh, extra laws of ritualistic purity, which they based on Habakkuk 2.4. Uh, okay, so that's, that's what this means. So we'll read that verse again, and you can understand it in a better context. Uh, let's see, as I say, 28? Yep. All right. Do we then nullify... Uh, Wait. For we maintain. Oh, no, no, no. I was, okay, 28, yeah. For we consider a person be set right apart from the works of the law or the deeds of the law. Whereas the tree of life says a Torah observance, which I think is totally wrong. So um, it says we are, we are considered a person to be set right apart from ritualistic purity, from these extra ritualistic purity laws. Because you know what? You're just when you're doing that, you're just putting on a show, right. so other people can see you and say, "Oh, wow, well, they must be really holy they're because serious. they do that." Yeah, they're serious about their faith. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, I'm gonna look through my notes, make sure I got everything. So remember the balance and dynamic of faith righteousness and works righteousness. Faith righteousness must come first, and works righteousness uh, does not and cannot come first. Again, you can't put the cart before the horse. All right, moving on to verse 29 and 30. Is God the God of the Jewish people only? Is he not also God of the Gentiles? Yes, also of the Gentiles. Now we know that all the Gentiles had their pantheon of gods. Greece and Rome have their pantheon. Uh, Egypt had their pantheon, which was basically decimated in the ten plagues because each plague tackled a, a God, one or more gods of the Egyptians. But... These gods came from the fallen angels who paraded themselves as deity. And so uh, they, Genesis 6, they had these offspring because these fallen angels cohabitated with women, had these hybrids, these giants. They were considered titans. They were called titans. They were demigods. And supposedly the, the kings descended from these, from these progeny. Uh, you know, so there is a, an element of truth to all these mythologies. They're definitely uh, embellished. They're definitely taken out of proportion. But there are some truth to them because did you know they actually found the tomb of Gilgamesh? Gilgamesh's tomb is actually Nimrod's tomb. They're one and the same person. Uh, Osiris's tomb 
has been found. Romulus's tomb has been found. They're all a part of a pantheon and a mythology. So there is some truth, but it is exaggerated. It has been embellished. So uh, we know some weird stuff went on back before the flood, and that was all because of that. All right, so verse, uh, verse 28 again, or verse 29. Is God the God of the Jewish people only? Is he not also a God of the Gentiles? Because, of course, there was no Jewish people until the tribe of Judah. So Adam, Eve, Noah, you know, Abraham, they were all Gentiles. Then he was their God. But then you had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had the 12 tribes. So that's when you have the Hebrew people, the Israeli people, the Jewish people. And so he's emphasizing that Yes, he's the Gentiles' God also. Not only from the beginning, from Adam and Eve to Abraham to you know Noah, but also at the foot of Mount Sinai, there was actually, there was at least one representative from the root uh, seventy root nations that was there when God revealed Himself to Israel, saying, "I am Yahweh. I am the one true God." Not only that, but He says, "These are my expectations. These are my laws and rules." Well, the the mixed multitude was standing right beside them and heard. His words. His words. Because it says that when God descended on Mount Sinai that they heard thunderings. That word thunderings in the Hebrew is voices. Hmm. So basically what it's saying is that when God spoke to Israel, Israel heard it in their language. But also the 70 nations heard it in their language. So they heard what God expected of them. So he is, and, and then not only did Israel say, yes, we'll do this, but the mixed multitude says, yes, we'll do this. So they accepted God's law along with the children of Israel. So here, that's another reason why Paul says, is he also not a God of the Gentiles? Not only from Adam, but from Sinai. Okay. Go through my notes here. We know that it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Um, so Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. When he was circumcised, he entered into a blood covenant with God but he was declared righteous before that act. And he was declared righteous before that act because he believed everything God told him to, and then he acted upon it. So Abraham was called to God as a Gentile, if you will. There's actually some liturgy when you are giving a certain offering in the Torah where it says, uh, this is what you're to say when you give this offering. My father was an Aramean, a wandering Aramean. So basically, they're acknowledging before we were Hebrews, before we were Jews, before we were Israel, we were a Gentile people. So, um, all right. And, and as I said, that technically there was no Jews until Judah because that's where the word Jew comes from. So you had originally Israel under Saul, David, and Solomon. After Solomon passed, Solomon's son come to the throne, was a real jerk. You know, thought he was a hot shot. He was listening to all his peers instead of the older, wiser men in his council. And he ticked off all of Israel. And all of Israel said, nope, we're done with you. So they got their own king. And so the ten tribes became their own nation, the nation of Israel, the nation of Ephraim. And the Jews became their own nation. So then as history progresses, you know, God is just totally disgusted with the ten tribes' activities and actions. They go off into Assyrian captivity. They've never left. They are lost. They've become the lost ten tribes. Slowly they're coming back now that we're coming to the end of days. But however, the, the uh, uh, kingdom of Judah 
which was made up of Judah, Levi, and a little bit of Benjamin, they went off into Babylonian captivity, and that's where we get Daniel and, and, and all that. They returned, and they are who we recognize as the Jewish people today. So the word Jew comes from the word Judah. Okay. Uh, Is verse Daniel? Uh-huh. Oh, one of mine too. All right, so verse uh, 30. Since God is one, and that word one, again, we gotta, we gotta, we can't think in Western terms because when I say one, I just mean one singular. But if I say you all, y'all, I'm speaking to you as one entity. That is one in plurality. So we do have a concept of that in the Western world, but in the Hebrew mindset, you had two words. You had yichad, which means one singular, and echad, which means one in unity. So it says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is not singular. The Lord is one in unity. So it kind of hints to that Godhead. Uh, so one in plurality, one in unity. So it says, since God is one, he will set right the um, circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now in our past classes, we, all, we, we, re, you know, we went over thoroughly the issue of circumcision. So I'll just kind of recap it here. Circumcision was given before Moses reiterated it in the Torah. It was given to Abraham. And it was only given to Abraham and his descendants. So anybody who is a Hebrew, an Israeli, a Jew, is obligated to be circumcised because the commandment was first given to Abraham. Still. Still. But however, for the Gentile, it's optional. Because there are some Gentiles out there who just feel so close to the Jewish people that, that they, they choose to become circumcised. And what the rabbis say is that these converts are most likely lost Israel because they believe. Just like that. Yeah. Because they believe that God has put like a homing beacon in the heart of every Hebrew person. So no matter how far flung they are in the world, no matter how far away they are from their Hebraic heritage, that there's something within their heart that draws them back. And that's what happened to me. Because I was raised Baptist, I was raised thinking I was Gentile, and I discovered my Jewish heritage right after I got into this. And I was like, oh, wow. And then I married a girl who didn't know she was Jewish until her birth mother contacted her. So it's like we're both Jews. It was kind of cool. So, you know, <clears throat> circumcision is optional for the Gentile. And circumcision has nothing to do with somebody's salvation. Nothing at all. Um, it's So, okay. So that I kind of, I'll stop there because you can listen to the past classes to catch up on that if you want to know about circumcision and how it applies. So uh, circumcision is, again, optional for Gentiles. And it was considered, it's considered in the modern times as a form of conversion to Judaism. So you had three classes of people in the first century congregations. You had the Jews, the believing Jews. Then you had the converts. Then you had the God-fearers. The God-fearers lived exactly like the Jews and the converts. The only exception is they didn't feel the need to get circumcised. That's, that's pretty much it. Uh, okay, so uh, we read verse 30. Now let's tackle 31. Ah, this will wrap it up for today. 31. Do we then nullify, basically make void or obsolete, the Torah or the law through faithfulness? 
May it never be. On the contrary, we uphold the Torah. We validate the Torah. We make the Torah relevant. So, you know, faith, basically Paul is trying to, to tie in faith righteousness belief. That the ultimate result of faith righteousness is works righteousness. Proving your faith by what you do. Proving your faith by your works. So do we nullify the law through faithfulness? May it never be. So do I nullify my marital vows by being faithful to my wife? That's ridiculous. Of course not. It's the same argument. The exact same argument because the Jewish people look at the Torah as marriage vows. Do we nullify the Torah, make void the Torah through faithfulness? May it never be. On the contrary, we uphold the Torah. So verses 23 through 30 is, is all geared and focused on this faith righteousness. Verse 31, the Apostle Paul tells us not to forget the necessity and the validity of works righteousness. Because we, um, because we have faith doesn't mean that believing is enough. And I gave this illustration last time, and I'll give it again. So belief is simply not enough. For instance, if I've just been poisoned and I'm going to die within the next half hour, I can have a little vial in front of me that is the antidote that will keep me alive and save my life. I could look at that and I could say, yep, yep, that's the antidote. Yep. I believe with all my heart that this antidote will keep me from dying and save my life and will reverse the effects of this poisoning. Was well, that going to save me? What do I got to do? I gotta take the antidote. Believing is not enough. My my faith, my belief in that antidote needs to be backed up by my works, by my actions of literally taking that antidote and downing it and taking it. So that's that, that's the same thing with our faith. I mean, people. I mean, even the Bible itself says, "You believe in God? Oh, congratulations! So do the demons, and they tremble." So belief is not enough. The demons believe in God, but they're not saved. <laughs> yep. So you got to back up your faith by your actions. And uh, let's see. So, I mean, all we have to do is read the book of James because he says faith without works is dead. He says, you, sh you show me your faith, good. I'll show you my faith by my works. So we, it's, like a, it's like a Reese cup. Chocolate and peanut butter go hand in hand. Chocolate and peanut butter go together, right? Just like faith righteousness and works righteousness, it goes together. So this is this is what the what he's trying to get across to the uh, to the uh, Roman congregations. Now remember, this letter to the Romans wasn't just sent to one congregation; it was sent to multiple congregations throughout the Roman Empire. So it wasn't just one like we would think of a megachurch or something. So keep that in mind too. So he's dealing with uh, a lot of different people. He's dealing with um, not only Jews but Gentiles. People think that Romans is strictly to a Gentile congregation. It's not. It's to a Jewish congregation that has Gentiles in that congregation and showing how both can live together in a cohesive unity, um, fulfilling God's word. All right, so that will wrap it up for today. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. And next week, we will tackle and jump right into Romans chapter 4. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you've revealed to us in your word. Help us, Lord, to better understand your word, not just so we can have this hoity-toity intellectual knowledge that we can share with other people, but so that that head knowledge can sink into our heart and make sense, and it can be made, it can be revealed in an applicable way so that we could actually carry it out and live it out. Because if we don't live it out, then there's really no purpose in learning your word at all. 
Help us to remember, Lord, that you are either Lord of all or you're not Lord at all. So, Lord, help us to constantly, uh, moment by moment, make that choice for you to be the Lord of our life and to bow our knee to you and no other and obey you as king. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.